All right. Well, uh, most of you are joining us online, and uh, there is an uh, in-person group here, and so um, I'm excited for uh, all of us to encounter God's Word, and we're going to get right to it. So if you have a Bible, open to 1 Corinthians 10, and we are going to follow Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 10 that builds into this massive punchline at the end once, once we work through this. So we're going to go on a journey of discovery together, and you're going to have to wait till the end to get to the big idea. If you're into to studying Bible study, it's, this is the inductive method. We're just going to follow Paul's argument, and it sort of ends with this crescendo, uh, the punchlines. So you're going to have to wait for this. Uh, he starts in chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Let's stop right here. What's happening? Um, So if you read the book of Exodus... Exodus is a story. I mean, we have exit signs, right? The X means out of. Uh, where are they going out of? They are going out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, and so if you're new to the Bible, um, maybe you can get caught up on this. Go back and watch the Disney show, The Prince of Egypt. It's actually a great uh, picture of what happened. They do a great job in that animated story. But um, God, you remember this? God's people are in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. And Moses comes and says, hey, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Pharaoh refuses, and the ten plagues, you remember the frogs, the flies, the boils, the, uh, the death of the firstborn, there are ten plagues. And finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here. And so they're like, all right, and they celebrate the first Passover, the blood over the door frames of the houses. God brings them out of Egypt. They get to the edge of the Red Sea, and what does God do? He parts the sea, and they walk through. Paul calls this moment their baptism. This is their moment of salvation for God's people as they walked through the sea. Then for 40 years, God miraculously provides for them from the rock, water just coming forth from a rock, and this bread that comes down from heaven called manna. And Paul refers to this as their communion, their participation in the body of Christ. Okay, we're going to come back to this idea of baptism and communion, but Paul's setting up his argument by saying the Israelites experienced the same thing we did in a different way as they walked through the sea, their baptism, as God provided water and food for them in the wilderness. Now look, despite these miraculous demonstrations of God's power and provisions, here's the question. How did God's people respond to their baptism and communion? Verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Now, this is a reference to something that happened right after uh, the, the parting of the Red Sea, okay? So they're, they're in the wilderness, Moses goes up on the mountain 
And God gives him the Ten Commandments and all these laws. You can read about that in Exodus. But the thing is, Moses comes down and what happens? While he was away, God's people were getting restless and they're like, he's taking forever. He's maybe, he's not coming back. And so Aaron, Moses' brother, says, all right, let's make a, an object of worship. So they make a golden calf and they begin to worship it. But this worship, this word that, that Paul uses and is used in Exodus, this isn't just a party, like celebrate good times. You know, it's not just like this innocent, fun dance party. Uh, no, this turns into a drunken and this word for partying, involved. this is like a, a sex party. This, is, this just gets, gets crazy, all right? So they're in this party, and God is saying, uh, no, that's not okay. Moses comes down. He throws the tablets, uh, wrecks the Ten Commandments, and it says in verse 8 here, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Some of these references, if you go back to Exodus and you read the book of Numbers as well, some of the history of that time during the 40 years, you'll, you'll get more of a context for all the things Paul's talking about, which we're not going to go into detail now. But he says, so in verse 9, let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So despite the miracles, despite these religious activities and actions, God killed many of them. He says, verse 12, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. He's saying, Corinthians, you are just like those people in the Old Testament. This history lesson shows that all the temptations that they experienced— the temptations towards sexual immorality, the temptations to grumble and complain and make idols, it's not unique to them. It's not unique to you. We as humanity experience these same temptations. And in verse 14, he says, so then my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? So Paul's talking about communion here. When you take the, the juice, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Okay, let's... Let's pause here on this part of his, 
logical progression. He goes back, he points to the Israelites. He's saying they experienced baptism communion. They had these religious, miraculous experiences, and yet they fell into idolatry. And then he says, don't you know that you guys are experiencing the same thing? When you take communion, you are experiencing this sharing, this fellowship. Now, this word for sharing in this text is the Greek word koinonia. Some of you have heard of it. It's the word, when we talk about fellowship, um, some of you uh, grew up in churches where our church had a, the fellowship hall. We're meeting for the, the potluck in the fellowship hall, right? Fellowship just means a sharing together, this deep, intimate connection that we have, right? Like, like your unbelieving neighbors uh, who have the same American flag and all the same, you know, some of the same things, uh, a shared citizenship in the U.S., like y- if they're not a believer, you don't have this fellowship with them. You don't have this deep connection. You have more in common with your brothers and sisters from uh, different countries, right, than you do because you have in Christ this deep koinonia or fellowship. Some translations uh, translate this word sharing or koinonia as communion. It's where we get, so what are we doing when we're com- communion? We're communing together. We're, we're sharing. We become this community that is bound together, this, this sort of this mystical, use that word mystical, because Paul's saying it's this, this deep sharing in the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. I want to just pause here before we continue. I think we need to remember that when we take communion, we should never just go through the motions of doing this. Like something we do, you know, we throw out that token prayer before a meal, um, bless this food, our bodies, amen. Uh, We have church and, okay, communion, they sing the song, I stand up, I go back, I... I take the bread and the juice. Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop and think about what's happening here. You are participating in the very body and blood of Jesus with God's people. Um, something happened a, a few weeks ago. Um, we, we just were unexpected. Uh, more people than we thought ran out of, uh, some, of the, some of the communion elements, Right? And um, my wife was one of the last people to go through the line, and I think there was maybe some bread, but not any juice. And um, so, you know, she, she took the bread, and then um, in the little plastic container, as she's walking back in, she kind of throws, throws it in the trash and has this, like, sub, this kind of thought that hits her, like, ah, well, you don't need the, you don't need the juice anyway, just, it's fine. It's just kind of, you don't need the, you don't need the juice, I don't need that. Well, she went um, that week and uh, spent some time with an older woman in the church who was just, um, just spending some time with her. And, and as they were praying and talking about things that, that are going on in life, um, as this woman is, is praying for, for my wife, Letha, she said, Letha, um, the blood, it's all about the blood of Christ. And all these things that you're experiencing, she just felt impressed to tell to tell her that victory comes, forgiveness comes, the power comes through the, the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
And all of a sudden, she had no idea, but God was bringing to mind that moment of just like, I don't need the juice. And it's like God was saying, no, never treat the body and blood of Christ so flippantly. We have a friend um, who goes to a more uh, traditional Lutheran church, and uh, we're kind of talking to her, and, and she said, you know, um, through the pandemic, we only took one week off at church uh, when everyone else was shutting down back in March and April, and uh, she said, we, we kind of just kept going. And her statement that stood out, she said, communion means too much to us to not meet. Like, we have to participate in communion. And it kind of hit me. I don't know in our stream of evangelicalism, if we treat communion that way, if we take it seriously enough, it kind of came as a rebuke. But the bigger part of Paul's point as he continues is this. So he wants us to hold a sacred view of communion, but then he says in verse 19, what am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. I don't want you to have this koinonia, this fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What Paul's saying here is that when you go to the local temple of Aphrodite or whatever god or goddess and you eat that cultic meal with the people of Corinth who are there to worship, you are doing the same thing that the people you condemn in the Old Testament were doing. Does that make sense? You look back at the people worshiping the golden calf and having a party, and you say, how could they? And yet, you do the exact same thing when you go to the local temple and eat this cultic meal. And just because everyone in Corinth is eating the buffet at the local temple doesn't mean you should. And he goes to the step of saying, it's demonic. Do not participate with them. So if we zoom out, remember the context. Those of you who've been journeying with us, remember 1 Corinthians 8. He's, he's talking about these disputable matters of like food sacrifice to idols and, and can we eat that meat or not, right? You go to the, the grocery store and the, uh, the meat was sacrificed to Zeus or Poseidon or whatever. And like, can you eat that meat? Is that okay? Paul says, ah, it depends. Some people... The strong and the weak, some people eat. It's, it's a disputable matter. It's not a black and white issue. Last week, remember Jake came up and he talked on 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, you know, to the Jew, I become like a Jew. To the Greek, I become like a Greek. I become all things so that I may win people. He's saying sometimes I adjust what I do on these gray issues so that I can win somebody for Jesus. Here's the point. 
Paul's saying, with all these disputable matters, this is not a disputable matter. Don't go to the temple and eat these cultic meals with your fellow Corinthians. You're not going to change the world by being just like it. There's a way that you become a counterculture in your culture. So here's the big idea. This, this whole chapter is a crescendo to this point to the Corinthians. Here's the big idea. Don't go to the temple and participate in cultic meals. That's Paul's punchline. This whole thing has been building, this whole history lesson to say this. Don't go to the temple and participate in cultic meals. Now, I have incredible news for us this morning. Back then, people were so stupid that they believed in gods and goddesses. Goddesses of love, Aphrodite, and God of the sea, Poseidon, and Zeus, and all the, the names that you vaguely remember from high school. And they actually believed in these gods and goddesses, and they actually made temples where they would go and, and worship and, and sacrifice to these altars of these gods. I mean, these people were so ignorant. They probably thought the world was flat and that when it was raining, it was God crying, right? I just want to say this morning, be thankful that you don't live in a time before science and progress liberated us from such unlightened ignorance. Okay, so we can close in prayer um, because we obviously know we don't struggle with going and eating cultic meals, right? So um, thanks for coming. All right. You know that the sermon's just getting started, right? Um, look at verse 12. He says, so, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. This statement is precisely our problem. We think that we stand firm. We do what the Corinthians did to the Old Testament people. We look at them and we say, how could they? We stand on this self-righteous platform of 2021, and we look back at history, and we say, a golden calf? Are you kidding me? Crusades? Slavery? And we look, and we're like, you, ridiculous. Temples? Cultic meals? Is this a joke? Like, these people were so stupid. But you know this, right? When we do this, we have to realize that there are people on this side of us too. And they're going to look back on us like our grandchildren are going to look back on us and say, how could they? I can't believe you lived in a time when they, dot, 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 fill in the blank, 
And there's a whole lot of things we can imagine they will be saying about us. And whatever statue they would want to build of us, they'll be tearing that one down too because of this very point that Paul is making. C.S. Lewis came up with this, a term for this. Uh, before he became a Christian, C.S. Lewis described himself as he reflected on his life before Jesus. He described himself as a chronological snob. A chronological snob. Chronology has to do with time. Like this very thing of looking back on the ancients and saying, how could they? He defined chronological snobbery as this. It's up on the screen. He says, our own age certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. The only palliative uh, or a remedy or medicine is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can only be done by reading old books. Our culture has a fascination with what is new, with what is current, the mantra of the 60s was, don't believe anyone over 30. But C.S. Lewis's mantra is something like, don't believe anyone under 300. <laughs> Look back and learn and let this clean sea breeze from the centuries blow through your mind and this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. So my question is, if we let this clean sea breeze of the centuries, and in this case, millennium, blow through our church, what will we learn? There's two things we're going to learn. Number one, we're going to learn about God, and we're going to learn about us. This is Paul's point. Here's the first thing. What do we learn about God? If you're taking notes, what do we learn about God? Here's the point. God hates idols. God hates idols. What is an idol? Sometimes when you don't know something, you can just Google, what does Tim Keller think about this? Uh, Tim Keller's a great writer, author, thinker. He's written a lot on idolatry, has incredible insight. Get your hands on anything that Tim Keller wrote on idolatry and read. His definition is simply this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. The first three commandments, what are they? You shall have no other gods before me. I mean, commandment numero uno, you shall have no other gods before me. Second one, not to make any images of the Lord God. And the third one, to not take the Lord's name in vain. All of these have to do with idolatry. Paul ends his argument in verse 22, and he says, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
This is Paul's reference to the Old Testament when it describes God as a jealous God. We think of jealousy as a bad thing, but in this context, God being a jealous God just means that he is concerned about his own reputation and character. He is jealous for his name to be known as it is. If somebody, if you're talking to somebody and they're like, you're like, oh yeah, uh, one, of, one of the pastors at Veritas was talking First 1 Corinthians, uh, Mark Aaron, and that person is like, oh, I know Mark. And you're like, oh yeah, totally. And as you start talking, they start describing like a different person. Oh yeah, Mark, you know, he's like 6'8", incredible uh, athlete. And you're like, well, I know the athlete part's true, but I'm not 6'8". <laughs> and, uh, and, and they start describing me like, Oh, totally. Like, uh, you know, short hair. And you're like, ah, kind of, yeah. And then, yeah, you're like, but the 6'8 part. And then the more they start describing me, like, oh, yeah, it lives in California. And I, I mean, all these things about me, you're like, oh, no, we're actually talking about different people. And they're like, no, I'm talking about Mark Arendt. You're like, no, but I know who that is. And then if I come into the conversation, I'm like, you're like, there he is. And I walk in and they still start, oh yeah, that's not Mark. And they start describing me as somebody that I'm not. Like, of course, at that point, I'm going to take offense. I'm going to be like, listen, I'm right here and you don't know who I am. It's like, stop doing that. Stop saying that I'm a different person. That's what people do when they turn God into an idol, or they fall into idolatry. That's what it is. You're saying something, you're believing something about God that is not true. And when it says God is a jealous God, it means it matters to him what his reputation is on this earth. That's why when we pray, when we say, hallowed be thy name, what we're saying is, God, we understand you're a jealous God and we want your name to be set apart as holy as it really is. And when we say hallowed be your name, it's a sense of we're repenting of all of these false views of God and who he is. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. God cares about his reputation. He hates idols. If God doesn't hate idols, it's the equivalent of a judge who doesn't care about justice, or a cop who doesn't care about the law, or a spouse who doesn't care about their vows. Do any of you this morning long for justice? Do any of you long for a world where there's no oppression when power is only used to serve and wash feet. When words are only used not to condemn, but to encourage and build up. Where people are treated as image bearers of God and beautiful and lovely and cherished. Well, your only hope for that kind of a world is if God 
is a holy and jealous God, a God of wrath who will punish idolatry and evil. That would be your only hope of ever experiencing a world of justice, is if that is what is true actually about God. Revelation 19 says, he has condemned the great prostitute who has corrupted the world by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servant. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the elders around the throne worship God. Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter what your religious experiences have been. Baptism, communion, if you remain in sin and you are more committed to your idol than you are to God, if the God that you have invented is comfortable with you going and sharing in the cultic meals, is comfortable with your sin, then it's not God that you're worshiping and your destruction will be the same as theirs. 23,000 dead people in the wilderness, people who disregarded the holiness of God. So what we learn as we let this sea breeze of the centuries blow through our minds, we see that God is holy. God hates idolatry. And actually, it gets worse because the second thing we learn is about us. What do we learn about us? The human heart is an idol-making factory. I'm borrowing this uh, from an old theologian. The human heart is an idol-making factory. It goes like this. You name it, we can figure out how to worship it. Right? Nature is beautiful. We can turn that into a God. Science, technology is beautiful. We can turn that into a God. Sports is incredible. Love sports. We can turn that into a God. Health, healthy living, great. We can turn that into a God. So we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, so how do I know if I'm worshiping an idol? How do I know if I've turned something into an idol? Well, one question would be, what makes you angry or anxious? What makes you angry or anxious? You might say, well, you know what makes me really mad? Is I can't believe when people who voted for fill in the blank. Like, I can't believe that. That makes me so mad. Or I'm watching the news and I can't believe what these politicians did. Boom, boom, boom. And, and you can see that that anger, may, maybe your idol is, is politics. And you have turned that into your hope. Like you are hoping that politics will give you what only God can give you. And so it's expressing itself in this anger or anxiety, this fear. Oh, here's another question. What do you spend your money on? This is an incredible indication of where your heart is. Jesus said it as clearly as where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Oh, you want to see if someone's worshiping an idol? Just look at their bank account, right? You can see pretty clearly. 
What does your calendar say about you? What you give your time to? What you get up at 5 a.m. for? What you prioritize? What you consider an essential service? Right? So it's actually kind of hilarious talking to different people about what they value and, and what they consider essential, right? It's like, my kids' sports, if the coach says we're having practice, like, we're having practice, and I, we're going to be there. And then when it comes to other things, it's like, oh, that's, that's not essential. I, I don't need that, right? Like, we, we do this thing, and it kind of exposes our priorities. Might expose workaholism, that my career is my identity. It might expose that my, my God is my leisure, my entertainment, Uh, How about this question? What does your internet history say that you worship? We could look through all your social media apps. Just kind of check in on all the stuff you've been looking at. Snapchat history, Instagram, all those things. Like, What would it say about what you worship? Well, maybe it's the social media wouldn't say that it's sexual immorality that you are wanting. Maybe it would say approval. I think this is one of the great gods of our day. One of the great idols is approval. I need people to approve of me. I need to tell you what I did today so that you will like it and you will affirm me. And you will say, Mark, you are a good person. And I say, yes, I I need approval. I need to be liked. I need to show you my virtue. Well, here's the question, church. What do we do? How do we respond? Paul tells us clearly. Here's how we respond. Run from sin and run to the table. I'm talking about the communion table. Run from sin and run to the table. Verse 14, Paul says, so then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. And then he goes right into this discussion about communion. And and the solution is not don't take communion. It's take communion in the way that God intended. You know, This is the great news of the gospel right here. When we say gospel, here's what we mean. Um, Have you ever heard people say this, uh, sort of an objection to Christianity and the Bible is like, well, one of the problems I have with the Bible is that in the Old Testament, God is so mean. He's a God of wrath. And now in the New Testament, all of a sudden he's nice. What's up with that? Why a God of wrath and anger, and now all of a sudden, a God who's just love? I don't get it. Here's what I want to say is, no. Um, Actually, that's a wrong reading of the Bible. There is way more wrath in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. It's just that all the wrath gets concentrated on one person. Because there is nothing so horrific and terrible in the Old Testament, anything close to the cross, where an innocent person 
was crucified, where the wrath of God was poured out on somebody who actually didn't deserve it at all. That never happened in the Old Testament. And here we see that's the Gospels. It's in all of them, the cross. Jesus absorbs our sin on the cross, and that's why communion is so precious to us as the church, because we celebrate that. And I don't know about you, but I can't get to communion soon enough. I want to run to the table because I know that God is holy and I am not. My heart makes idols and God hates all of them. And so you know what we need? We need some good news. And the good news is that Jesus is the cure for us. He's the solution for us. And the solution is his body broken for us his blood shed for us. He can cleanse us from our sin. And this is the great news of the gospel that we experience in Jesus the pleasure of God. And we can say as Christians, this is as close as you will ever get to hell, right? God sings over you. He delights in you through his son, Jesus. Thanks be to God who saves us from our sin. But I want to say this. We're going to take communion here in a minute. And I want to say this. Um, before you run to the table, if you have no intention of turning away from your sin, if you have no intention of repenting of your sins, like if you want to take all of your idols with you to the communion table and try to fit Jesus onto that and take the juice and the cup, then don't take communion at all. The only way to come is to cast down your idols, to confess your sin. You bring the repentance and God will bring the forgiveness. I'm gonna invite you to come here in a minute. And I just wanna say, um, for those of you at home that, that won't uh, experience communion, we're, we're actually, I think it's kind of fitting. I think it's providential. We have a snowstorm and most of our church is not in person. I think it's appropriate for us to um, even wait um, if you're at home. Uh, next week, we are going to take communion. And this would be a great week of examining your heart. Maybe even some of you this morning will, uh, will just kind of need some time to wait. We're going to give you some time as a worship team is going to play this song and, and just give us time to think and reflect um, before we come to the table. Now, I want to just say something. I, usually, I would leave this point off because we're out of time, but we're not out of time because we got all day. There's not another service after this, okay? Um, I'm going to make this quick, all right, to make a long story longer. Um, here's the last point. I, I want to give this to you um, because some of you are going to fall into some spiritual paranoia this week. Is this an idol? I don't know. I don't know. Is this, is this an idol? Uh, here's the thing I want to say to you. The second part of what do we do? We run from our sin and run to the table. The second thing we do is we love God. I want to encourage you. Love God and do whatever you want. That's the Christian life right there. Actually, I'm borrowing this from St. Augustine. Love God and do whatever you want. Well, how do I know if it's an idol? Well, do you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and strength? Are you walking in obedience to him? Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, sweet. Then just do whatever you want. There's a lot of disputable things out there. 
What kind of career does God want for me? I don't know, like, are you generous? Are you giving? Are you living for Jesus? Yeah, well, then pick whatever job you want, right? It's like our backyard at our house, there's a lot of things to do in our backyard, right? I mean, there's a lot of snow. The kids get creative. They could play snow football. There's a trampoline. They could jump on the trampoline. They, there's some hills. They could sled on the hills. Uh, they can do whatever they want in the backyard. And, and I tell the kids, like, there's kind of our house backs up to a busy street. And it's like, don't play in the street, okay? But outside of that, do anything you want in the backyard. Imagine the kids come to me and they're like, hey, dad, dad, we don't know what to do. Should we go sledding or play snow football? Whichever one you want. So it sounds great. Stay in the backyard. And they go out and then they come back in like, Dad, we don't know. Should we go sledding or play on the trampoline? We're like, I don't know. Play with whatever, do whatever you want. Just stay in the backyard. Right? They can do whatever they want if they're in the backyard. It's, the thing is like, don't go in the street. And God's word is pretty clear about what the street is what idols are, and what the backyard is. And so God wants you to live in relationship with him in freedom. And when you're loving him with all your heart, I don't want you to go into spiritual paranoia this week on, on idols. And is this an idol? Like, I really enjoy this. Or this relationship, like, should I be in this relationship? Is this, is this person an idol to me? Or, Well, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and do whatever you want. That's my advice to you. Let's pray together. Worship team's going to come up here and lead us. Jesus, we are so thankful that you came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we need to be saved this morning. Jesus, my heart has cranked out so many idols this week. And I come to you this morning. And I don't even know what all of them are. And I, but I'm just saying, I want to come with empty hands and just everything, God. Take it all. Take my life. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Hallowed be your name. So here's what we're going to do as we um, close our time together. Um, for those of you that are at home watching, listening, I want to encourage you to um, just take a moment and uh, just take some time to um, reflect. You know, maybe you're at home and the kids are running around and this is a very crazy moment. Um, you can come back to this Maybe hit pause and come back to this later. This doesn't have to be a super holy moment, but at some point today or this week, get some time alone. Maybe you can come back to this part of the service. Um, worship team's gonna sing this song over us from Psalm 23. So as the band plays, um, yeah, Dalt, if you guys could just give us a minute or two just to just kind of play over us some music um, before we start singing. Would you take this and, and just invite Jesus to come speak to you?
talk to Jesus right now. And then um, once they start singing, um, you don't have to join in corporately. You can if you want, but you can just also just listen to them sing the song over us. But when you're ready, as, as Lauren starts singing, you can um, make your way to the communion tables. Again, if you're online, um, we'll have communion again next week. Let this be a time of preparation and waiting for some of you, but um, we invite you to come to the communion table when you're ready. The bread is the body of Christ broken for you. The juice represents the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's do this in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus.